You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's a long way to Tipperary, it's a long way to go, it's a long way to Tipperary, to the sweetest girl I know, goodbye Piccadilly. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 36. This will be the first episode where we discuss aircraft and air power during the Great War. We have mentioned it in passing several times up to this point, uh, mostly around reconnaissance efforts by the various air arms of the armies. I'm going to preface this episode with a warning, though. There are going to be a ton of facts and figures and other data points mentioned during this episode. These are mostly to show how much things were changing in the air during the first 12 months of the war, but you may get a bit dizzy from all the numbers flying around. Don't worry, there won't be a test. In 1915, there was a clear delineation between the major air powers of Britain, Germany, and France, and the lesser powers of Russia, Italy, and Austria-Hungary. This delineation was created from the differences both technologically and industrially between the two groups. Air power in general would end up playing a far larger role on the Western Front. While there were still planes in the East throughout the entire war, they would find themselves in the reconnaissance role far more than the fighting role. In 1915, that was the beginning of the use of planes for both aerial combat and for bombing raids, and all the countries were grappling with what their strategies were going to be moving forward. While trying to figure out what they wanted to build, they were also trying to figure out how to build it. Trying to mobilize each country's industrial capacity to manufacture airplanes the army was wanting would be a major theme throughout this episode. One of the big themes early in the air war was the number of planes being delivered, just like any other weapon. The one thing that I never really thought about, and I probably should have, was that the biggest bottleneck was engines. We live in a world where there are so many factories that produce engines, and motor vehicles are ubiquitous in almost every country. This was very much not the case in 1914. The automobile was new, and with planes being made out of wood and cloth early in the war, it makes sense that the most complex and difficult to manufacture piece was the engine. So when I talk about how many engines each country could produce, I'm not just throwing that number out to be random it is actually a pretty good indicator of how many planes a country could field and how advanced its industrial capacity was. The first country we will discuss today will be Russia. Now, Russia isn't necessarily known as a big player in the air war. In fact, I don't think I'm saying anything too crazy 
when I say that not much is known at all about the air battles on the Eastern Front in Western countries. However, there were airplanes over the Eastern Front just like in the West. And in early 1915, Russia took the step of trying to combine the organization of all aviation activities under Grand Duke Alexander. This seems somewhat obvious, have one guy running the show, but it wasn't an arrangement that most of the other countries had right at the beginning of the war. Alexander had both an army air force and one attached to the navy to organize. This arrangement also wasn't atypical, and it remains the arrangement of many countries around the world today. The Navy had air fleets to operate in both the Baltic and Black Seas, and of course the Army took care of everything in between. 1915 was a big year for Russian aviation, with the number of planes going from 350 to 550 over the year, and monthly production rising from just 37 in 1914 to 200 planes per month by the end of 1915. Even with this rise in production, they couldn't keep up with the output of German factories so they were forced to import planes and parts from France, which put them in direct competition with the requirements of the French military. This resulted in older, often obsolete models being sent eastward by the French instead of newer, more useful planes. Now one of the shining spots in aviation for Russia, created internally, was the creation of the Sikorsky Grand Airplane, which was a very large bomber that could carry up to half a ton of bombs, which was a spectacular amount for 1915. It was also just a large plane in general, with three crew members, two machine guns, and a flight time of over five hours. These planes would end up being essential to the reconnaissance efforts of the Russians. The flight time made it infinitely more useful on the long eastern front. The survivability was also impressive, especially when you take into account the relatively light armaments of most planes early in the war. Before larger machine guns were mounted on the fighters, the Sikorsky Grand Airplane could stand up to a lot of punishment. These aircraft first started arriving in August, and by the end of the year, the Russians started to really realize their value, and they would instantly place an order for 75 more. Now one final note, much like other eastern countries, training was a serious problem for the Russians. Now it didn't help this whole attempt to get enough planes to the front and actually flying, when it's estimated in The Great War in the Air by John H. Morrow that fewer than 20% of Russian pilots were actually effective at flying their aircraft. One of Russia's primary opponents, both on the ground and in the air during the war, was Austria-Hungary. Austria-Hungary, just like on the ground, had three problems to deal with in the air. Russia, Serbia, and Italy. Now, the Serbian Air Force was pretty much non-existent, but the other two were a problem. One of the interesting uses of the Austro-Hungarians Air Force early in the war was the carrying of messages to the besieged troops at Shechemel, which was really the only way to get information to the beleaguered troops inside the fortress. The Austrians also managed to rule the Adriatic Sea early in the war with a plane called the Loner L-Boat, which was a monstrous plane with a flight time even greater than the Russian Sikorsky at 7 hours. Now, it wouldn't carry as many bombs, with about a third of the capacity, but it could bomb Italian cities after the country's entry into the war. While this plane was impressive, much like Russia, Austria-Hungary was heavily dependent on its allies, in this case the Germans, for their manufacturing capability. 
By the end of 1915, the Empire found themselves almost entirely dependent on a, the Hansen Brandenburg factory near Berlin for all of their modern engines. Just that one German factory was, by the end of the year, producing more engines than all of the factories in the entire Austro-Hungarian Empire combined. Knowing their positions, the Germans obviously charged a high price for their services. This dependence didn't end in 1915. Even with increased local production in 1916, of all of the planes that the Empire would receive during that year, 186 of them were from Germany, while just 281 of them were produced within the country. Just a brief word on Italy now. They entered the war with only 150 obsolete French aircraft. When it became clear that they would probably enter the war, they ordered 100 more near the end of 1914, after creating the Military Aeronautical Corps to sort of uh, keep things organized. In a fun fact, the number of planes ordered at 100 actually outnumbered the total number of people employed by the Italian aircraft industry in 1914. The Italians did manage to build one plane, specifically to be a bomber, that they called the Caproni Cow, which was powered by three Fiat engines. Fiat would be the primary producer of engines for Italy during the war, and for the Caproni, they furnished three engines per plane, which was enough to get the bomber to Austria-Hungary and back by the end of 1915. So of the three countries in the east, a massive amount of time and material was poured into these massive long-range bombers, with the ability to fly for several hours. This tendency for larger aircraft is almost certainly due to the fact that there were far fewer aircraft per mile of the front in the east than in the west, making it more difficult for craft focused on aerial combat to find targets. Of the three countries in the west, Britain started the war with the smallest air presence, with just 153 planes. Now the number of planes was a problem for the British, but another problem was the fact that they had a hard time getting enough pilots. At the start of the war, they refused to let enlisted men, or NCOs, become pilots, and insisted that officers were the only men who could fly, due to their increased social standing and education. This put an obvious cap on the number of pilots that could be trained at any one time. The British started the war, like everyone else, with reconnaissance as the primary goal, and before Neuve-Chapelle, which we mentioned a few weeks ago, they tried to get the entirety of the British front in the area, photographed and mapped, to help support the attack. This was quite the undertaking with obvious benefits. The British also tried to use planes to show the infantry progress to artillery and commanders by dropping white pieces of cloth to mark how far the infantry had gotten in an attack. Now this is a solid plan, but it never really worked out, and the problems with it would never be solved before it was replaced by wireless communication. One of the innovations attributed to the British was the use of the clock code to guide artillery onto target. This was introduced in the fall of 1915, and it was a great system that was also very simple. Basically, each plane was equipped with a bit of see-through material, with 12 lines drawn on it, radiating out from the center. Eight concentric circles were then drawn around the point in the middle. The point in the middle would then be placed to the point on the map where the artillery was trying to hit. With this system, the spotters in the planes could easily, and most importantly, unambiguously, give directions to the guns on the ground. They would say that the artillery was hitting two circles out on the two o'clock line, like on a clock. 
Back by the guns, they would then have the exact same setup on their plotting tables. This was a great system that didn't rely on complicated coordinates or map reading skills. It wouldn't really come into its own until wireless got into the planes, but in the beginning, the planes would fly over the artillery and drop canisters with the information in. So it was slower, but it was still just as effective. While the British had a few technical innovations, they fell woefully behind in the air technology race as soon as the new German plane designs began to appear at the front, specifically the Fokker. At some points in later 1915, they basically completely lost control of the air over the front. They did start mounting Lewis guns on the tops of the wings of the planes above the pilot seats, trying to give them some aerial combat capacity, but they were still heavily outclassed by the Germans. While the Royal Flying Corps was trying to keep some sort of presence over the front, the Royal Navy Air Service was trying to do a bit of bombing and patrolling of the seas while frantically trying to find a way to deal with the German Zeppelin raids over England. The separation of the air services without a unifying commander began to cause problems as 1915 drug on. They were constantly fighting each other for material and manufacturing. Now this wasn't just domestic manufacturing either. The British were also using French manufacturing to help offset some of their domestic shortfalls. They had quickly maxed out the capacity of manufacturing in Britain and had to farm out to the French who of course charged high prices. The two groups didn't communicate on technological or tactical advancements, probably contributing to the Germans having such a massive advantage. So let's talk about those German Zeppelins. Zeppelins would see sort of their one and only moment in the military spotlight in the early days of World War I. They gave the Germans a decided early advantage in the war, because they were able to bomb Britain at such a high altitude that no British planes could touch them. They also had the advantage of being far less weather-dependent than airplanes at this point in time. Remember that most planes in the early years were made out of wood and canvas. The first air raid over England was launched on January 19, 1915, by just two Zeppelins, named unimaginatively L-3 and L-4. This would be the first of several bombing raids over the next few months that would see the Zeppelins target both Paris and London. On May 31st, the first raid against London specifically was launched with a new type of Zeppelin, with a volume of 1 million cubic feet, and the ability to carry 2 tons of bombs. Now I don't know about you, but when I hear words like 1 million cubic feet, my mind has absolutely no mental image as to how big that is, and so I encourage you to check out the website where I've put some size comparisons. Needless to say, it's very large. Anyway, frequent raids over parts of England continued over the summer months of 1915, and there were around one raid a month against London. The last raid was on October 13th, which killed 71 and injured 128. Now I'd just like to take a minute and dwell on these air raids, and others early in the war. This would be the first time that citizens in cities like London would have to look to the skies and worry about what they might find there. Bombs might be falling on them at any moment, especially in cities like London that hadn't been threatened by enemy actions in centuries. This must have been a rude awakening. Unfortunately, for cities all over Europe, it was but a small preview of what would happen in the next war. We 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. While the Germans had a great advantage with their zeppelins, over the front in early 1915 they were struggling. The planes they had at the front were unarmed, and were no match for the planes that the French and British were fielding at this point. To try and fix these problems, the Germans took the step, like some of the other countries we've discussed, of unifying all of their aviation-related activities in mid-April 1915, and it is after this move that things started to turn around for them. The first of the new planes to arrive was called, rather unimaginatively again, the seaplane, which boasted a 150 horsepower engine and a machine gun mounted on the second seat behind the pilot. Over the course of the coming year, while the Germans would create flashier and faster planes, it would be the seaplane that would remain the real workhorse. The German planes were greatly outnumbered as they arrived at the front, so for a while they would be used strictly to defend against Allied air raids. In the middle of the summer, the next generation of German planes, the E-plane, would begin to arrive, and on it would be one of the most impactful technological innovations of the war, the interrupter gear. Let's talk about the interrupter gear for a second. Now, in early aerial combat, the pilots and observers were mostly just using infantry rifles to try and take pot shots at each other, and then they took the step of mounting machine guns on the wings or on the observer seat. As aerial combat became more common, a Frenchman named Roland Garros began investigating the synchronous interrupter gear. This gear was a system that would synchronize the engine and the machine gun mounted the fire through the propellers. With this gear, and some precise engineering, Garros was able to get the bullets of the gun to fire through the spinning propeller, at least most of the time, like 90% or so. Obviously, 90% of most things is good enough, but when you're talking about shooting bullets through a propeller, it wasn't. So through the winter months of 1914 to 1915, Garros was taken off of all ordinary duties to focus strictly on this new invention, and by the spring, Garros was able to take a prototype plane into combat and quickly shoot down three German planes before he was shot down himself. 
and this is how the Germans ended up with their hands on Garros' invention. This was combined with the German work done by Anthony Fokker, and the synchronous gears would be in German Fokker airplanes before the end of the year. While the design was pretty much good to go in mid-1915, there were still a few problems that were being worked out when the E-planes were sent to the front. And just to be clear in this case, when I say problems, I mean planes literally shooting off their own propellers, so pretty big problems. This combined with some control problems forced the Germans to remove the E-planes from service temporarily while they were getting worked out. In its short time at the front, the E-plane ruled the skies, with a massive advantage over the French and British aircraft. Now Fokker wasn't thrilled that his plane was getting pulled out of the line. Having the top, top aircraft was great for his company's prestige and pocketbook. So in October, Fokker was able to use political connections to get the plane back into service. Now this is sort of when you start seeing the first aerial superstars of the war in Germany, with Max Immelmann chief among them. He would be called the Eagle of Lille. In November 1915, Emmelmann had a special e-plane created just for him by Fokker for his use at the front. At the end of 1915, with the e-plane and the upgraded C-planes, which were also equipped with the interrupter gear, the Germans began to go on the offensive and really start ruling the skies over the front in France and Belgium. Even though the Germans found themselves in a ruling position at the end of 1915, they were having the same supply problems as everybody else. They were having trouble getting the manufacturers and the military to work together efficiently. Early in the war, much like in France and Britain, factories typically bid on contracts and that they had no hope of actually delivering. This problem was just worsened by the fact that the German factories often ignored orders from the German military to take on more lucrative orders from Austria-Hungary. Now this wouldn't be a permanent problem, and the Germans would mostly fix it in 1916. During this time of technological ascendancy, the Germans didn't rest on their laurels, and by the end of 1915, Hugo Junkers was already beginning work on an all-metal airplane with its obvious advantage over planes made of wood and canvas, but the story of the creation of this plane will have to wait till next year. So let us turn to the last country on our list that we will discuss today, the French. The first few months of 1915 heralded big changes for the French Air Service. They had opened four new flight schools by March, and throughout the year they would introduce five new types of aircraft, the Voisson, the Cadron, and the Farman, which were bombers, and the Newport and Moraine, which were fighters. To create these new aircraft, the French nearly doubled their production capacity between January and March, but by mid-1915 the level of production had begun to slow due to a crippling lack of engines. This engine problem was made worse by constant small changes to specifications based on feedback from the front. Now this type of tweaking based on experience is great, except for the fact that it prevented the French from settling their production lines down to a single type of engine and airframe. This was also an area that was hurt by the fact that large swaths of France were under German control including so much of their manufacturing and heavy industry of pre-war France. There was one final problem, France's allies. France had agreed to supply England and Russia with a portion of their engine production capacity, since the French, while limited, could still produce more than Russia and Britain combined. 
All of these problems required two large changes to be made to French manufacturing plans. The first was the inclusion of automobile manufacturers in the production process. Oh, I guess I didn't mention this earlier, but at the beginning of the war, the French aircraft production was controlled by the director of military aeronautics, who was pretty insistent that production remain limited strictly to the specialty aircraft manufacturers. So while the French Air Force had a crippling engine shortage, there was still plenty of engine production capacity making engines for civilian uses. This was not a strictly French problem, and it was eventually solved in all of the countries. But it is one of those things that makes me shake my head at how unprepared the countries of Europe were for the scale of the war. In early June, the war ministry also took a big step and allowed several different arms manufacturing industries to reclaim some of their skilled labor from the front. So many skilled workers had been drafted back in August 1914 that the factories were having trouble reaching their maximum production capacity, let alone trying to expand that capacity. This robbing of skilled workers from the front did nothing to help the animosity between the frontline commanders all the way up the chain de Joffre and the factory production managers. The soldiers thought the factory workers were lazy, and the factory workers thought the soldiers were wasteful. Both sides had good reasons to believe this. At the front, the soldiers saw the manufacturers that couldn't create enough engines, and some of them weren't even of high quality when they did arrive at the front. The manufacturers kept getting contracts from the army for obsolete types of engines that were sometimes not even used, or they would just set in planes on airfields due to the fact that they were inferior to the German planes in the air. So of the planes that did get to the front, what was the army doing with them? Well, much like everybody else, the French Air Force started the war as primarily artillery observation, with the Farmans and Cudrons being the primary airframes used. Now these planes weren't actually greatly threatened until the German seaplanes started to appear over the front in 1915. The French artillery officers often didn't believe these aerial spotting reports when they did arrive. This seems odd, and it resulted in several errors like the shelling of French troops during the Artois battles. These types of trust issues would only be ironed out over time, but it was not soon enough for some of the French soldiers. Now, one of the areas that the French put a lot of focus on in early 1915 was aerial bombardment. And in January 1915, the War Ministry offered a prize for the best bomber design. The technical experts in France weren't united on what they thought would make a great bomber, and what the best course of development was. But everyone agreed that they needed to be large, which resulted to running into engine problems. As engine horsepower got greater, the engines got to be unsustainably heavy especially when the French got into the 200 horsepower range. The early engines were all in line, with each cylinder positioned behind the one in front of it, and the French began to research more into radial and V-engine technology to try and make the engines lighter. The French wouldn't really have a top-class engine until the introduction of the Hispano Souza 150 horsepower V8 engine, and it would end up being one of the best engines of the entire war. It was in the V configuration with an aluminum block to save weight. This would be used in future bombers with great success, but in the meantime, the French were forced to use the Voisson airframe as bombers, and in the early days the bombs were just artillery shells that were dropped over the edge of the plane by the co-pilots. Obviously, there is a pretty hard limit to how much these men could hoist over the edge of the plane, 
So they soon developed an improvement, which was to attach 155mm artillery shells under the wings and racks, and then give the observer a way to trigger the release of the shells from within the cockpit. As for bombing strategy, for the most part, the French high command favored strategic and industrial targets, and the first large raid was on the Bandish Anilin factory of Ludwigshaven, which developed explosives and poison gas for the Germans. On May 27, 1915, the bombers took off at 3 a.m. for the six-hour bombing raid. The raid would end up being successful and would set the stage for larger raids, with 23 planes attacking Karlsruhe in June and 62 planes attacking Diligen in August. By the end of August, the French would have 100 dedicated bombers at the front used for these raids. When the Germans started getting fighters to the front in large numbers, the French began flying in formation to maximize defensive firepower, and they would also begin to use night raids as a safer way into German territory. The French commanders had dreams of 500 plane bombing raids into Germany, but they were still lacking a truly great next generation bomber that would make it possible. Another design competition was completed in November, but the resulting bomber, the Breguet Michelin, while meeting the technical requirements of the competition, was almost entirely disliked by the pilots who were actually called upon to fly it. By late summer 1915, almost all of the leaders of France knew that there was a serious problem when it came to manufacturing airplanes. So in September, to try and fix some of these production problems, an aviation subcommittee of the French Parliament wrote a report in which it claimed that the aerial situation was grave and that all of the blame should be placed on the Army Command. The report pointed to the lack of coordination between the Army and the manufacturers as the primary cause of this situation. After these scathing remarks, the Army put in some research and rewrote its entire operational plan. No more obsolete aircraft would be ordered. There would be less bombers and more fighters to combat the German planes. They ordered 800 all-purpose aircraft, powered by the Hispano Suzos. These changes went in the face of years of French aerial theory. There was now less focus on bombing, and maybe more importantly for the manufacturers, less emphasis on exact specialization of engine and airframes, with the 800 Hispano Suzos powered airplanes proving that. There was also a new director of military aeronautics appointed, and he was a civilian who believed it was the manufacturer's job to supply whatever the front needed and not to question it. He reorganized the Aviation Production Service and proposed the creation of Inspectorate of Material to verify that it was getting to the front in the highest of quality. Manufacturers were not a fan of this idea, although of course the army would have loved it, and he would be under constant criticism during the war and after it for his policies. He was so controversial that by early February 1916, he was forced to resign. This would begin a revolving door of directors of military aeronautics that would hamper French production well into 1916. So I think this is where we will leave air power for now. However, I think it gives a pretty good foundation, and you can expect to hear more about air operations as we move into the battles in later in 1915 and beyond. The air war will play a larger and larger role as the war moves forward, and the technology will grow by leaps and bounds over the coming years of the war. We will probably check in on these innovations on a yearly basis, strictly to focus on the technological and production advances, 
since they will probably distract too much from normal episodes. And in 1916, we will meet even more of some of the most famous air aces of the war. Next week, however, we will take our podcast back to the ground as we discuss France's large summer offensive on the familiar battleground of Artois. Hooray!